does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. As we alluded to before the break, we were going to pivot out west to the Kings and the Pacers because we're going to ask who won the trade? Who won the trade? (laughs) We got the best guy to ask about that. Brendan Nunez out there covering the Kings for Blue Wire Pods. Brendan, how you doing? I'm doing good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining, man. I met Brendan out in Summer League last year in person for the first time. Been covering the Kings does a great job. He does the video clips and he does writing. He does podcasts, does it all. And so I have to ask you, Brendan, who won the trade? And I mean that sarcastically, but now that we're a year plus removed from it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But now that we're a year plus removed from the DeMontis Sabonis, Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald trade, are you surprised at all about how well it's worked out for both sides? Definitely surprised. You know, I, I'm not going to do the uh, the whole who won because <laughs> my mind, in my mind, I think it's a rare win-win. Truly, like extremely rare. You know, and I do think there is still some risk involved from Sacramento's side more so than Indiana's. Like you know that Tyrese is going to be that sort of guy moving forward. Um, even if maybe some people are skeptical about the number, I don't know about if if that's anybody. Um, near where you guys are, but I've heard some skepticisms. I think Tyrese totally deserved it. And I've heard the same stuff about, you know, the extension that Monte Sabonis just got, some skepticism behind him getting that number. But clearly these are centerpieces of both of these franchises that they're happy to commit to, and I, and I think for, for really good reason. So as, uh, as boring as it may be, I, I really feel like this is a win-win. For us here in Indianapolis, Brendan, it's only been about nine seasons since the Pacers won a playoff series. And in that same vein, it's only been three years since their last trip to the playoffs of any kind. Now, granted, those were uneven teams at times and they were short stints. But regardless of who won or lost that trade, as you cover this team and as you look at where Sacramento is from last season to now, the ultimate goal as a championship, sure, but to end that drought and to have the basketball world captivating, captivated by the Sacramento Kings, I, I, I'm sure is, is a reward and just a, a very thrilling experience across the board for you on that beat. Yeah, I don't think that people fully are uh, realize how much that meant, like locally for the city of Sacramento. You know, like it having been 16 years when right next door there was a historic franchise with the Golden State Warriors, right? There's practically a whole generation that why would they ever choose to be Kings fans? And there was such an excitement around the team last year. I mean, everybody in the city was all about it everywhere they went. Um, You heard the 15 minutes prior to tip-off in game one was probably the loudest stadium I've been in. And that's when all the guys ran out, like just the energy in that city and how much it was needed to really just feed a hand, a fan base that was super hungry, but also engage some of the younger fans that I think could have very easily gravitated towards Golden State during that time. Brandon, when you look at the Kings, 
I know Sabonis is a big part of it, and I would argue with Pacers fans all day long about him being the best player on the team when he was a part of the franchise. He's over there now. He's sort of like that hub in the middle of the floor. But what did you think of the jump that De'Aaron Fox took? I know people talk so much about the jump Tyrese Halliburton took as the primary ball handler, as the number one guy. But with him no longer in sack, it seemed like it opened up even more for De'Aaron Fox, who was already trending in that direction. And then obviously last year, I think, turned into a true star. Yeah, I think the same. I mean, you could actually see it from the very first game that De'Aaron and Domas played together, that their chemistry was just going to – it worked right away. Even little stuff of them both being lefties, but as you guys are aware, Sabonis sets amazing screens and is so good at setting up his teammates. But even beyond that, it's all the spacing around those guys that De'Aaron Fox never really had. Like, Buddy Heald and Tyrese Halliburton were the two best shooters that – I believe De'Aaron Fox has played with, with maybe like Nemanja Bialica up there, I guess. Um, but those guys far and away, usually there's a non-shooter or two on the floor next to De'Aaron. And when you add um, not only Demonis Sabonis making things easier, but you still have Harrison Barnes there to space the floor. You now got Malik Monk and Kevin Herter there spacing the floor. Trey Lyles had a good year. Keegan Murray set the rookie record for three-pointers made. So, I think that spacing was so essential to unlocking De'Aaron because he did get better. Uh, he, his three-point shot improved a bit, um, and, and with that came the free-throw numbers. That's something he worked on a lot, and he's going to work on, he said, every year until unless he somehow starts shooting like Steph. Um, but <laughs> I think also the clutch numbers, Yes, he could have just always been this guy, but we never had the way to know. Like, to be blunt, the Kings weren't in enough close games for us to have ever seen this. There was stuff early in his career where he'd have big clutch moments, but it was so far and few between. So while I do think De'Aaron got better, I think it's a lot of what he already was just with more ideal circumstances around him. To piggyback of what you said where he was being super clutch, I mean, that man turned into MJ in the fourth quarter more times than not this past season. But someone who looked like MJ in Summer League was Keegan Murray. So you were there. Oh, my goodness, was I pleasantly surprised at how good he looked. Not saying he wasn't going to improve, but, Brendan, what was your impression of the obvious growth that he has had in his game this offseason? Yeah, I mean, I didn't even expect that. You know, I was very much a, I will admit, a Jaden Ivey guy at the draft. And even after a little – Last year, I'm like, man, I wonder if Benedict Matherin should have even been the guy here. Um, but Keegan has absolutely, I think, shown some growth and made me shake some of maybe the unfair low ceiling uh, label that I maybe had on him. There was some flashes last year of off-the-dribble stuff, but he only shot a little over one pull-up attempt a game. So I think the big thing for me is really the mindset and willingness to go out there and put up enough shots to get to 41, to get to the free throw line 15 times each in those two games right about. Um, And you just hear him being more vocal. You know, it's joked about all the time that he's very, like, monotone and doesn't show much much emotion. But you could even just hear talking to him and pressers how much more vocal he's gotten going into this year. He was, like, vocal leader was sort of the role of that summer league team that he'd been – taking on and and on the court I mean just being willing to go out there and be the primary I think was a big step and some of that off the dribble stuff is is definitely real man 41 I'm not one to overreact to summer league you know I gotta I gotta try to pace myself a little bit but it's hard to not get a little excited by 40 
by a 40 piece. Brendan, a local angle here in Indianapolis is when you look at where the offseason is for Sacramento. One of our very own, a, a Tech High School grad in Trey Lyles, gets a two-year, $16 million contract out there with the Kings when free agency began just a couple weeks ago. What will a player of where Lyles is in his career from just a depth standpoint bring to the Kings? And then overall, as you reflect on what they've done this offseason as they try to take another step forward, where are they on that path? Yeah, Trey Lyles really pulled at my heartstrings in his ex- in his exit interviews. He talked about how I believe he'd been on four teams in five years and how, you know, in that process, you don't really want to make friends too close because eventually you're going to end up on another team and not around those dudes. And last year, he said, was the first year he really let himself build those sort of relationships off the court. Um, we saw him courtside at Summer League with all the guys uh, at the beginning of Vegas. And he very clearly was like, my top priority is to come back to Sacramento. And so I'm glad to have him back, even outside of, like, as a person. I'm pretty sure all the fours they throw up in the locker room is something relating to Trey Lyles. I can't exactly (laughs) figure out what's going on there. But I think that's started by Trey. Um, They have a a great chemistry between all these guys. And on the floor, Trey was amazing last year. The three-point shooting that he provides – the quick decision-making, it, it was joked a lot when he was leaving Detroit that this guy just pump fakes every single time, and those have gotten eliminated. He's you know making a firm decision and sticking to it, whether he's letting it fly or putting it on the floor and making plays from there. Um, so I, I think Trey's been great. I'm really glad that he's still on the roster going into next year. But when it comes to overall offseason moves, you know, it is – kind of cliche but it is a little run it back you know there's some differences there's Chris Duarte that you guys are obviously familiar with that's Mm going to be taking the spot of Terrence Davis and I I think that's a notable upgrade and then you got Sasha Vizentov EuroLeague MVP coming over as well and practically taking the spot of Chemezi Metu which I also think is a notable upgrade so I I think that you got some some depth improvement but overall you're, you're bringing back a lot of the same core pieces here. You mentioned it there with Chris Duarte, someone who I have a lot of respect for, one of the nicest guys I've ever covered in my life. He was probably the first Pacers player to ever just call me by my first name and speak to me outside of a meeting, a media setting, so he's a really nice guy. But from a basketball standpoint, obviously the Kings took a flyer on him, so how do you see Chris Duarte maybe fitting in and reestablishing himself in the NBA out there in Sacramento? Yeah, I got the same impression of, of Duarte being a super nice guy. Like, right away, um, just seems to be the nicest guy out there. And quickly, I had a group chat having a debate if him or Larry Fitzgerald had wider teeth for what it's worth. <laughs> Duarte's always out there smiling. Um, but, I I mean, I think from the King standpoint, it's a really low-risk move. Yeah. You know, they traded a future, two future seconds, one of them being their own and one being a Dallas second for – a guy that really fits their type. You know, they, they love winners, guys that won at different levels. And, and Duarte obviously did that at the college level. Um, and I think that just makes the context of how he's going to work in Sacramento's system pretty obvious. You know, there's the the big sell seems to be his chemistry with DeMontis Sabonis, right, as I'm sure you guys are aware. Mm-hmm. Um, Domas speaks Spanish to him on the floor. Duarte, uh, English is, is sort of the second language, so I think that's pretty helpful for him. And there, there's a clear comfort between the two there. And um, I, I'd actually be curious what you guys think, because from my impression, part of Duarte last year was not only not having Domas there, but then Buddy Heald and Benedict Mathurin come in, and there's a little bit of a 
uh, positional overlap. But I'd be curious to hear your guys' impression of uh, Duarte's potential fit. Yeah, I think there was a log jam last year with him, and then the injuries didn't help because when he did come back and he started playing a little bit well, he would get hurt, he'd be out. So I think he has to be get healthy and stay healthy to get an opportunity, a true opportunity in Sacramento. But I think he fits fine because he provides some length, some size, and he can shoot the ball from the outside. He's a pretty good three-point shooter, and again, like you said, his chemistry with Sabonis is pretty solid. And one of the things that stands out to me about Duarte, just a quick story, I remember we were talking to him before a game, after a game, or something like that in a media setting, and he said a word wrong in English, and he looks at us, he's like, ah, oh, you know, you know, my English isn't all that great. And I tell him to his face, it's like, my Spanish is non-existent, Duarte. <laughs> like, you're the most brilliant guy in this room right now, so, like, you don't need to apologize if your English isn't, you know, the most crisp thing. Like, he's a really good dude, really humble guy, and I think the change of scenery could be good for him because of his skill set. There's not really much pressure, and he's going to fit that mold of what you already have in Sacramento, which is those bigger wing-type players who knock down shots, defend, and just keep the floor space for guys like De'Aaron Fox to continue to rip it up, you know, on the inside. Yeah, he started when when we asked him in Vegas, uh, you know, what do you feel like you bring? He started with, I'm a shooter. And, you know, those those shooting numbers aren't amazing, but clearly that's uh, something that he thinks he can bring and, and something that I mentioned, you know, with how De'Aaron Fox was unlocked and I think Domas also having a great year. Spacing is so important. So if that's the case, I think there's some minutes for him. Yeah, I mean, if you're out there in Sacramento and you're a Kings fan just trying to look at where Duarte is going to fit, I mean, James hit the nail on the head. There was a logjam here. There wasn't a true avenue for him to be able to thrive and get minutes. And when he was initially coming out of college, the thought was, well, perhaps a team that is championship ready or is right there looking for a shooter or a more experienced older guard out of the draft, that's where he would end up. He obviously ends up here and his rookie season in 55 games, I mean, he had a nice percentage, right around 37% from beyond the arc, but that dipped severely down to 31% this year. And as James outlined, the injuries and everything. But yeah, I mean, you're just hoping for a change of scenery, and hopefully he's able to at least fill that role regardless of where the minutes are of being somebody that can be involved in the rotation, knock down a bucket for you, play some defense on the other end. And it, even though Sacramento might not be at the very top of the Western Conference in terms of just what might be the Vegas favorite to win it next year I think that's what you're hoping for is that he can be the player that he was projected to be out of the draft yeah and I I think there is a little bit of a positional question in Sacramento as well I mean I think what it comes down to is they're going to ask him to play the three a decent bit Um, there's still Kevin Herter there's still Malik Monk I don't know if Davion Mitchell could get some run at the two um, this coming season and then Harrison Barnes Keegan Murray is your sort of three four so there's not much three depth, and I think that they're going to be asking Duarte to to sort of fill that a little bit and, and run some three-guard lineups. But I, I'm excited to see what they got. I think overall from a roster construction standpoint, it's definitely an improvement over um, the guy they had in that spot previously in Terrence Davis. So here's my hard-hitting question of the day. Light the beam. I know this started. It was a thing. It became a thing. I love it. I think it's great for the league, for the Kings, just to – create some fun but when did you see it really latch on out there in Sacramento where it wasn't just this gimmicky thing and it was something that really was like a rallying cry for what turned out to be one of the best seasons they've had in recent memory I mean it's probably when we realized that the team was actually good and not like (laughs) you know and and I think that was pretty early on 
Like, they lost their first four games, and then I think there were a couple up and down. Um, but after that, they never lost, I want to say, more than three games in a row and, and went on a seven-game winning streak not long after. And you could just tell that it was it was a little different this year. Um, so the city rallied around that pretty quick. I think they would have rallied around it no matter what, to be honest. But it's a pretty gutsy move, i got to say, from the organization because if you put that beam up and you win – 30 games, 28 games. Can you imagine all the memes from around the league? You would be, you know, the Kings were already tangs and getting laughed at and stuff. The memes would have been off the charts. So it's a gutsy move. It definitely got fully embraced, I think, from around the league when the rest of the teams realized they were good. I think it was actually the Pacers. Every team does this if they beat the Kings. Um but they always post their own Photoshop of like their yeah, own beam yeah. of a different color. And I want to say the Pacers put up a yellow one after they beat the Kings this year, if I'm remembering that right. But, yeah, it, it's it's definitely fun, and it's here to stay. So That's awesome. My last one, 50 Cent. I remember seeing him last year at Summer League, and I was like, what the heck is he doing with the Kings owner? Um, what has it been like seeing him around – the arena and around the team and obviously being involved with this new era of Kings basketball. Yeah, I will say, I, I think 50 is a fan of a lot of different NBA. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, John fan Court of money. <laughs> earlier this year. Uh, yeah, you know, I think it's got a little something to do with who he can partner with, but like stuff like that is, is pretty cool. You know, like it's just uh, caring a little bit more about, Sacramento, um, you know, 50 Cent being there. There's Aziz on, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Hassan Minaj, who is a comedian based out of Sacramento and very vocal about liking the Kings. Um, good amount of people that, that show up to these games now, man. And they're just an extremely entertaining team. You know, they're not just, it's not just winning games. It's like from an entertainment standpoint, the way they get up and down the floor, the way that they're shooting, the, the play, the baller player movement is a really extremely entertaining brand of basketball. So I guess 50 Cent enjoys it. I, I think that he might enjoy uh, some paycheck involved in that a little <laughs> bit more. That may be a little bit of a factor, but news that he just likes lighting the beam. I'm just glad the purple jerseys are back and they're not actually going away like that marketing uh, campaign they had when they released those all purples the other day. <laughs> well, Brennan... Thanks for having you know some time with us. I appreciate you coming on, man. And I'll make sure that uh, when the beam, the beam gets lit, when the Pacers and the Kings are in the finals, that uh, I'm sitting next to you and talking about it. So <laughs> you take it easy out west, man, and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, guys. I appreciate it. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. 
We're going to resume our NBA conversation here with Matt Issa, who covers the NBA for SB Nation and a few other outlets, including Forbes Sports as well. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing really good. Um, I was just reflecting this morning. This is my first time on live radio. So, yeah, feeling good, feeling great. Just feel some words. <laughs> I stole it from Outcast, so we're all fine. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so, Matt, we'll obviously start with the Pacers. What did you think of their offseason additions to upgrade the roster, highlighted by Bruce Brown, Obi Toppin? Uh, beautiful. No, it was a beautiful offseason. I think uh, one thing last year, the best teams, best coaches, they follow this philosophy. They call it KYP, Know Your Personnel. Rick Carlisle, he looks at this team, he's like, they're young, okay? They, they have a lot of three-point shooters. They like to run up and down the court. We have Tyrese Halliburton, who's like the Midwest Magic Johnson, right? <laughs> so, like, let's play fast. Let's play fast. And I think, you know, what the front office realizes is, one, like, this works. Like, this is how our guys like to play, our core guys. Two, like, this sells. Well, this team is fun. People like watching them. So they go get two guys in Bruce Brown, and um, Obi Toppin, who, you know, they can run the floor, they can finish, uh, they can play fast, they can play with pace. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was awesome, really doubling down on what your key personnel has now. And then I don't follow the draft that heavily. I don't watch these guys until they're at the NBA level. But um, the things I've heard about Walker with the defensive versatility and how that might um, coalesce with Miles Turner – I think that could be really interesting as well. So, yeah, I think they had an awesome offseason. So all I heard was championship in 2024. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. Like, you said that. <laughs> but you talked about it right there, you know, the, the Midwest magic, a little bit of a joke with Tyrese Halliburton. But what did you think of his leap that he made last year? I know you said you're really locked into, like, the NBA film, the NBA analytics. And for a guy to be 2010 and shoot 40% from three – how special of a season was that? And did we appreciate that enough? Okay, so, you know, I uh, I wasn't the first person. I actually probably was lower than consensus on Tyrese Halliburton for a little while. When they traded the bonus, uh, they traded the bonus for him. I was like, everyone's like, oh, the Pacers just had a massive steal. Ha ha. You know, the Kings are silly, stupid Kings, right? I was like, hold your horses. We don't even know if Tyrese Halliburton is going to be as good of a player in the future as the bonuses now. <laughs> I watched year three. So um, there's this website called Cerebro Sports. Uh, they have a really good collection of data. And they have this um, tool. It's called their global search tool. Basically, it allows you to, like, find using, like, st- specific statistical indicators, um, like player seasons that have been, like, comparable. And the only guys in NBA history with seasons – comparable to the year Therese Halliburton had last year, according to their database, are all all-star guards. I'm talking Mark Price, um, James Harden, Stephen Curry, Chris Paul, Steve Nash, guys like that. And so, you know, I, I dug a little bit deeper. I started watching him more religiously. And, again, I need to see him in the playoffs before I make any, like, judgments on the kind of, like, player, like, he can be at his peak. But, like, his offensive game is he has pieces. He has remnants of all of the great offensive guards. Like I can think of like he, 
he moves around like he's Steph Curry. Like when he passes the ball, he doesn't just stand there. He moves around. He has James Harden step back. He runs the floor in transition like Magic Johnson. He's um, egalitarian in the way he plays. He's selfless like Steve Nash, like Mark Price, like Chris Paul, like all the great floor generals. He just, I don't know, I'm, I'm obsessed with his offensive package. And then on defense, he's not like the world's greatest defender, but he's long. And that's so huge in the NBA today, having length. So, yeah, I mean, I know he signed that extension, but I I really think he's he's going to be like a top 15 player very soon, if not better. Matt, when we look back at that trade, because right now th- there is still a sense of, of happy vibes on both sides for the Pacers. It is, okay, we have a cornerstone piece to build around and develop, and, and we've locked him up now for six more seasons with the five-year extension plus this season that he already had under contract for. And for the Kings, it's we have DeMontis Sabonis, a, a all-NBA caliber player that helped guide us and was a key piece into the reason that we were a threat last year in the playoffs and had a successful year as they did. But from the Pacers' side of things, now that extension is done, and by all means, I think Tyrese Halliburton's worth every penny, but for mm-hmm. us to look back five years from now and say, yeah, that really was a win-win trade, truly, what do the Pacers need to do next year in your mind? Next year? Well, I or, think or, or over the next it, three, let's say. Yeah. Not just next year, but but over the over the life of this contract with Tyrese, what will have been, yeah, that was really a win-win for both teams? Because it feels like, at least from on-court success, as many expected, the Kings got the better end in the right now. Yeah, again, like this is a long-term move. Nobody thought the Kings were even going to be as good as they were sure. last year, right? I'm sure you guys weren't expecting mm-hmm. at this time last year. Um, I don't. I don't want to be that guy. I'm not. I'm not big on like uh, rings culture. I think that's like a really nihilistic way of sure. doing the game. I think every team has their own goals. Like I think the Kings, like this season, they were first round exit. Like I think Kings fans are delighted with how that season turned mm-hmm. out um for the Pacers long term if you have okay if you have so let's talk about Terry Salbert I think if, if he if you know if everything trends the way it should for him that's an all-NBA caliber guy running the show for you right when you have an all-NBA caliber guy if you surround him with the right pieces like you know look at look at Jimmy Butler he's an all-NBA caliber guy um and look what they do with them. They make deep playoff runs. So I think for this to be a success, I think it's about the front office kind of building around Halliburton. Because I think, again, I need to see him in the playoffs first before I know it. But I think mm-hmm. he's capable of steering the ship on some deep playoff runs. I'm not going to say championship runs, but I think he can for sure make some deep runs given the right personnel. I'll say championship because I can <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's possible, but I'm just saying like I don't want that to be like yeah, we're with you measurement for success, you know. Right. Yeah, we're with you on that. I mean, it's 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 a very uh, archaic and and just yeah. you know a zero sum game effectively. If all you're saying mm-hmm. is well, if you don't have a ring to your name, then your career was not worth anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and quite honestly, the guy who's beloved more than anybody out here in Indiana is. Reggie Miller, yep. who didn't win it all. Yep. So, um, Matt, I do want to pivot away from the Pacers for a second and look at the league big picture-wise. And I know Dame is grabbing a lot of headlines as of late, but one headline sort of died down a bit, I would imagine, is Bradley Beal to the Suns. And I wanted to have you on to discuss this because I know, again, you look at the game from a very analytical standpoint and from how things could fit. And how do you see that sort of meshing or maybe not meshing out in Phoenix considering that they have three guys who are very, very good off the dribble and can shoot the ball very well, and then a fourth max guy as well in the roster in DeAndre Ayton. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to share something with you guys. So 
when the game really started to make sense to me, the game of basketball, is when I realized it's not that different from like how we understand economics, right? Everything comes with a trade-off, okay? And I think as fans sometimes, we look at, we look at a trade happen or a potential trade and we poo-poo it because we can immediately identify a vulnerability it now presents, right? For example, like when Beal... When Beal got traded, they're like, well, uh, they still don't have depth or defense. And I'm like, yeah, they have weaknesses, but so does pretty much every professional sports team in the history of everything. You know, you're always going to have weaknesses. But I think what this Beal trade did, going effectively basically Beal for Paul, um, their weaknesses are no different, right? They still have questions on defense and with their depth, right? But it made their strengths stronger. You know, their top three, their three-headed snake is more powerful now, more potent. It's, it's venom is more potent because, I mean, Bradley Beal at this stage in the game is a better player than Paul. So I think it was a, a no-brainer move for the Suns. I don't really – I mean, you know, it's like life in general. Like, what do they always say? Take it one day at a time. It's the same thing with basketball. You can't think, like – I know it's important to plan ahead, and sometimes you make some bad moves that could scar you forever and ever. But, like, you can't think about, like, oh, we have to pay Beal X amount of dollars this year or whatever because – at the end of the day, the league is showing us. If you want to get off some money, you can get off of it, you know? In that same vein, as you look around the other moves that have yet to take place and kind of where the market from a trade-off standpoint, post-Rudy Gobert trade, post-Kevin Durant trade, post-Bradley Beal trade, as you look at James Harden wanting out of Philadelphia, as you look at Damian Lillard wanting out of Portland, where is the real I know let's start just with one of them let's start with Dame I know it's clear he wants to go to Miami and Portland doesn't want to be forced into a bad deal but but where is the trade-off for them when you have a young who you think is the next face in Scoot Henderson of your franchise waiting in the wings but also not wanting to undersell to a point where you can't build around him as a small market team like Portland is yeah I guess okay so my thing is okay so, like, my, I, I hate the discourse behind this because I feel like everybody thinks, like, it's Damian Lillard's job to be, like, there's, okay, there's one camp that thinks it's Damian Lillard's job to be the noble soldier and, like, not <laughs> use the leverage he has. Sure. Like, you, like, okay, for example, when you guys are negotiating your contracts, don't you use the leverage you have? I, I know I do that with my stuff. I use what leverage I have to my advantage. That's, like, human nature. Why wouldn't you use your leverage, right? So, it makes sense for Dame to do what he's doing. It makes sense for Portland to do what they're doing. Now, what should Portland – I think Portland doesn't – okay, you never – you never, when you're trading a star who's said they want out, you never get, like, a yeah. dollar for a dollar, right? You're yeah, always right. giving up some. But I think in this case, like, people are forgetting Portland wasn't supposed to get the number three pick, right? They got lucky there. So, like, you got that luck. So, it's it's okay if you settle for a little bit less than – like, you know, what you probably would have gotten. for. I think it's okay. Like, you shouldn't put that much stress on it. I don't think you should turn this into a whole thing and kind of, like, ruin the legacy of one of your franchise's greatest players and end it in such an ugly way. Like, I do think, you know, you shouldn't just adhere to Miami's will. Um, But I I think there's, like, a balance. Like, you don't need to maximize it, but you also shouldn't just, you know, give give him for nothing because he wants that and Miami wants that. Like, don't be afraid to call his bluff. I know he'll – if you trade him, if you play, if you trade him to Pelicans, he'll he'll suit up. Like you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, neither of us, and clearly you don't either, we're not at a stage where we view either side as the villain or the hero of this. Like, even though there's been some shots fired in terms of demands in the media, we're not at a point where I'm necessarily rooting for one side or the other because no. of loyalty or because of, oh, it's a mean team and they should fold <laughs> this. Like, I'm, I'm not at that point where either person is good or bad right now. No, it's, this is standard. Like, this is... This is no different than any. I don't know why we treat basketball any different than any other corporation. I mean, it's just like an employer and employee arguing over like salary or something like that, you know? So, I don't know. It's a silly thing that people do where they like they in that situation wouldn't take the moral high ground, but they always assume <laughs> that the parties involved should. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'll tell you what, man. I am team no loyalty. Like forget all that. Like you got to figure <laughs> out what's best for you in this in this field in this life, but um to pivot away from him, one player that we do know is in a new situation, obviously that's been resolved, is Chris Paul. Now, the question is, will he come off the bench or will he start? But just overall in general, what are your thoughts on him going to that team, joining that point guard, and trying to do something that he has done in his career, which is win it all? Yeah. Okay. I just want to be on the record of saying this. I think people have soured on pool way too fast. Like, if you, like, I think if he was just shooting like four or five percentage points higher from three this season, the whole perception on the dude changes. You know what I mean? I think we're forgetting how good we thought he was a year ago at this time. So I do think – I know why the the Warriors did what they did. It was for salary moves. Maybe they overreacted to the second apron a little bit. Um, but I just want to put that out there. Mm-hmm. With the Paul thing, okay, I've always been of the camp where it's like, hey, Matt, you know, you study the game a lot, you're still not a front office executive. <laughs> you, still, you, you know what I mean? You still got to – got to understand that these guys are not the bumbling idiots we make them out to be. Like, there's some logic to the things they do. Now, the more I think about it, so with Poole, when you, he was basically, you know, Steph Curry's de facto backup, right? Yeah. And Poole's, Poole's, like, what made him great is he could kind of masquerade as Steph Curry. He wasn't Steph Curry, but he was, like, 80% of him whatever on offense right he could he could do the little movement he could do the split cuts he'd come off screens he could run around he could shoot he'd shoot a 40 footer when he didn't need to in a certain late game situation that people got mad about i digress yeah yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) he could do all those things right exactly all is like he gives you a different style you know what i mean like so maybe that's what they're trying to do now they're like okay when Curry's not on the floor, we want a change of pace. We want to slow things down. We want to have another pitch we can throw at you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe there's that. Maybe Paul looks different next year if he's only playing like 20, 25 minutes per game in the regular season and he's fresh in the playoffs. Who knows? Like this guy's a, he's in the 99.999 percentile of competitiveness. He still wants to win a championship. I'm sure he's going to come back in great shape next year and be a productive player. So I'm going to, I'm uh, I'm going to sit back and see what happens, but that's kind of what my guess is, what the front office is thinking right now. When you look at, as we jump around the NBA a bit here with you, when you look at where Boston is at now versus where they were at the end of the season, the Chris Daft Porzingis edition is the largest looming aspect of that, and, and no more Marcus Smart, of course, as well, and the ongoing negotiation with Jalen Brown. But assuming it gets worked out with Brown, and it is going to be a trio of Brown and Tatum, and Porzingis, as you look at the rest of the East, wh- where is Boston? Are they right there still punch for punch with Milwaukee in terms of your top of the conference going into next year? 
Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I don't think it's because like uh, Boston got it much better or anything like that. I just think it's just because you know nobody else. I mean, Phillies. We don't even know what's going to happen in Philly right now in Harden, right? Yeah. And then Milwaukee, you know, they're kind of running back the same core. I know they have a new coach who, by the way, I think is a great guy, very intelligent, very smart, um, and Coach Griffin. But they're running back the similar core. They're all getting older. So we'll see about that. Boston, okay, so it's just, okay, my biggest thing when I watched the Celtics this year, especially in that Heat series, is they – they have. They didn't have a guy to me who could kind of. So there's a saying, right? In basketball, it's like you got to keep the energy in the ball. You got to keep the ball moving, right? And you guys remember two years ago, say when people were talking about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, like, oh, they'll never, they'll never work together because they're both like these bucket getters. They're both ball stoppers, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and then like things changed when they moved Marcus Smart to point guard, and he helped kind of keep the energy in the ball, keep their ball movement going. You know what I mean? So they're at their best, basically, when the ball's moving, when they're keeping the energy in the ball. The thing Miami's defense does the best is they put you in the mud. They take the energy out of the ball. With all their, like, swarming and the way they trap you and the way they, you know, gap the the paint and make it tough for you to drive in there, they're like the energy suckers, okay? And so I feel like this offseason when I was looking at this team, they need somebody who can – be their pace setter when things like start to fall apart. We can steady them. I think Smart wasn't doing as great of a job of that anymore. So like I understand moving him, but like I guess my question, the question, the big question I have about them is, is can Malcolm Brogdon be that guy next year? Um, he, he was injured. People are probably going to forget this. Like when we look at this series ten years from now, but he was injured during that Miami series. He wasn't himself. He wasn't that effective. He was getting torched whenever he was on the floor on defense. Is he going to be healthy next year? I'm worried that that's not going to be the case because they initially tried to trade him and the Clippers backed out. The Clippers of all teams backed out because of health issues. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm shocked yeah, that injuries continue to plague Malcolm Brogdon's yeah. career. It's not like that was experienced many a night here in Indiana, no more than exactly. two years ago. So, And then it's the Clippers of all teams, the, the, the freaking Clippers. If you know they hit I mean? the brakes, then something – yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it yeah. probably is. Honestly, it's, yeah, it's probably a red flag if they're saying no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what worries me. So I'm worried about them not having that kind of steadying force, that that like true classical kind of point guard who can kind of steady their offense when they get stuck in the mud. Well, because Smart's still there. Smart's still there if if Brogdon's billables aren't what they were. Like if he has a clean bill of health, they're not moving on from Smart. Yeah, and then I really like that because I I I think one thing people are like um, not understanding about this trade is Memphis got the best player. Um, I know Christoph Porzingis has like the sexier numbers, but Marcus Smart, he asked me, he's a better basketball player than Christoph Porzingis at this point. So if they could have been able to move on from Brogdon, who's like, I would say, like a similar level player in the hierarchy of the league to Porzingis and keep Smart, I feel a lot better about this team. But I'm really worried about what losing Smart does to them. So here's one that's a little bit out there, not too crazy, but when you look at the league as a whole, and like you said, you're. I know you're knee-deep in film throughout the season. And I always admire how you guys, some of you other reporters out there, really break down film. And it just reiterates how much I don't watch enough games to really have opinions on on players and teams and things like that. But um, when you look at the league as a whole, who maybe is a guy or two that you expect to make a leap next year into being one of the better players in the league or someone we'll be talking about 
on a night-to-night basis, similar to like an SGA, for example. I don't know if people expected SGA to be as good as he was last season, but he took a leap to being an all-NBA you know, NBA caliber player. I'm not saying the guy has to be that good, but who's someone you're looking at like, okay, this is somebody to keep an eye on to maybe enter that new age of stardom? Okay, so he's not going to be a star player, I don't think ever, but he's going to be like a superstar role player. I think – Keep your eyes out on Trey Murphy the third. I think he yes. is like New Orleans, yeah. the the future of super of superstar role players. Right? He can he can shoot the three. He can fin- he can catch lobs. Super athletic. Super long. Can defend. He can put the ball on the floor and drive when you close out on him. Um, I really like him. I I expect Poole to have a big bounce back here. I really do, and I don't think it'll be empty calories. I think he's going to be legitimately good. I think he he's had you know development isn't linear. And I remember watching him his third season, so their championship season, and just being like, "And I know you guys are gonna, you guys are gonna kill me. Indiana's gonna kill me for saying this." But I remember at the end of the third season, I there wasn't really that much of a gap in my mind between his ceiling and Tyrese Halliburton's ceiling. Now I will say I've digressed from that. I think Halliburton's ceiling is much higher, but I don't think that Poole doesn't have All Star juice in him either. So I could see Poole um, having a big bounce back year. Anyone else saw me? If I could predict these things, you know, I'd, I'd probably be doing something other than fighting. <laughs> no, no. Um, and I, I know I'll put you on the spot, uh, but to your point, though, Matt, I do agree that after Poole's third season when they won the championship, that the gap between him and Tyrese wasn't, like, as wide as it is now. And so you saying that, in hindsight, isn't some crazy take because, again, at that point in time, you the Pacers weren't exactly sure maybe of what they had. And obviously Poole was coming off a championship where he – very well helped them win it. Like I don't think that the like the Warriors win that championship without him in 2022. So um, I, I will have your back there for the uh, Pacers fans uh, come with their pitchforks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just look at 2023. They fell short because in part because he wasn't able to to take some of the load off of Curry in the non-Curry minutes. You know. Mm-hmm. Last thing for me, Matt. When the Pacers acquired Bruce Brown right out of the gates and free agency, and then you see the subsequent moods of Obi Toppin and and the glimpses that you've seen, just of we're not overreacting to summer league, but it's like okay, I see what the Pacers see in Jarris Walker in terms of where they have to jump off with him. As you look at this Pacers roster and particularly that addition of Bruce Brown, what do you make of it heading into again? Not a prediction, but just what do you make of the adjustments they've made, especially with Bruce Brown coming in for the 2023-24 campaign. Really quick, I know it's um it's bad uh it's bad uh bad practice to go back in the conversation a little bit, but in terms of breakout players as we talk about this Pacers roster, I was actually at Summer League and I've been on this guy since, you know, I started watching him when I was studying Mathurin film. But Andrew Nemhard is good at basketball, okay? He, I know he's a little bit older, so his ceiling for development is limited. But I could see him having kind of a big bump his second year in the league. Um, he's such a splendid uh, defender. I love his perimeter defense. He's a really underrated ball handler and passer. Um, you know, I think the shot is – I think he'll continue to get good looks playing off of guys like Halliburton and Brown. So I just wanted to say that. And then to pivot over to what I think of the team's overall outlook – I think there there are definitely I mean like again nobody in the East is getting that much better. Uh, I think the Cavs have made some moves around the margins. The Knicks are running the same crew. The Bulls are running pretty much the same crew. Washington got worse. 
I don't see the Pistons or the Hornets really ascending too high up the ranks. I could definitely see the honestly, I could see a world where the Pacers don't have to play a playing game and be in the playoffs next season. That's where we have um, the bar set. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah, I will say this though: um, that fans could just manage their expectations on. That could that could manage their team's expectations on. I'd say one. I still have question marks about the defense. I know Jarius Walker is supposed to be like a a really good defensive prospect. It's very rare that rookies are good defenders early on. And I love Miles Turner, but he's not like that 99th percentile defender where he can anchor an entire defense on his lonesome. I think he can be the spearhead of a great defense, but I don't think he can anchor it on his lonesome. So I want to. I'm hesitant to talk about the defense, and I still think. Because they added so many great transition players, I still question how good of a half-court offense this team can be. And I think that's really going to be contingent upon how much guys like Benedict Matherin grow this season and how much he's able to kind of be that secondary creator when Halliburton's not on the floor or to allow Halliburton to play off the ball. All right. Well, Matt, we appreciate you coming on and discussing all things NBA, including the beloved Pacers here in Indiana. I'll check in with you soon, man, but good luck with everything going forward. And hopefully get some downtime with Summer League winding down here. Oh, yeah. No, I've been I've been chillaxing, watching. I've uh, been watching some Manu Ginobili film. Uh, that's what I like to do in my free time. But uh, <laughs> no, it's very cool to catch up with you guys. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. You Absolutely. Have Thanks, one. Matt. Kevin. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Bowen now. You hear him weekdays 7 to 10 a.m. on Kevin and Query. And of course, you find all of his work covering Colts, Pacers, and everything out of the state of Indiana on 1075thefan.com. KB, happy Friday to you. How are you, my friend? Boys, how are we doing? Doing good. Doing great. Now we're talking to you. The day has gotten better, KB. It's always the highlight of the Friday, KB, <laughs> when we have you on. Low bar, low bar. <laughs> Kev, I guess we'll start there from the conversation that continues to loom with Jonathan Taylor. I want to go big picture first nationally as we continue to see the stories and the reports on Saquon Barkley maybe taking the first steps towards not learning the lesson from Le'Veon Bell in that he might not report for training camp and how far that goes. I think you and I agree it's a futile exercise, but as you look at the current running backs that either are free agents or that are fighting tags and you look at that type of drama not wanted in West 56th Street, what are your takeaways from it all? 
Well, I, I feel like in typical fashion with this, you probably have to wait for the Barkley thing to play out, I would assume, before Taylor um, yeah. inks any sort of extension. You know, he seems to be the first domino. I don't know, maybe Dalvin Cook would, would even be on that list. Uh, you know, Barkley seems to be in a little bit of a more of a similar, you know, age, time, time path in his career, et cetera, et cetera, than, than Cook. So, you know, to me, that's probably the first domino um, that needs to happen before something concrete gets done with Taylor. And I think the interesting thing to point out with your running back contracts in general, I mean, if you look at these guys in the NFL right now, um, you know, I think we all would think Derrick Henry has got to be paid near the top of the running back contract list. If you look at it, you know, Henry makes $12.5 million, which is third on the list. But if you look at Christian McCaffrey and Alvin Kamara, they both make $15 million or more. I mean, that, that's a pretty significant mm-hmm. gap from one and two to three. So now the question becomes for Taylor is, you know, how much leverage does he have in wanting to try and get to that? I assume he wants to be in the 15-ish number because he doesn't, you know, play third down uh, anywhere near, you know, how Kamara and, and McCaffrey are used. I mean, hell, they're pretty much hybrid running back wideouts. So. Right. You know, obviously, in our little bubble here in this market, we care about it. But I think NFL-wide, they're really going to be plugged into this of, like, Taylor is really generational on first and second down. But, again, how does that compare to, you know, today's day and age in the NFL where, you know, running back usage and how, you know, valuable you are, you know, third down is a big, big deal when you're handing out, you know, significant money. I definitely agree with your take on that because – it's so hard to gauge and again JT might be in a better position than the others because they haven't paid the quarterback here in Indianapolis so maybe he can sort of use that as an argument to get more money but one guy who's already getting paid a ton of money who you've written about recently is Shaq Leonard and I know in your story that I read about it even with uh Ursay's appearance on the Pat McAfee show how big of a season do you think it is for him to sort of prove his worth and his value. And I'm not saying that in a demeaning way. I just mean it in a, it's hard to justify paying him that amount of money if he isn't out there. Yeah, huge. I mean, I, I mean, massive. I think you can make the argument that he might have the most to prove of anybody on the roster. Um, and there's multiple factors. I think anytime you have a guy that's dealt with injuries now for over a year, uh, he falls into the a lot to prove category. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you've brought this up before, James, but if you look at, you know, Leonard's contract, there's an out after this coming season. So in a way, he's kind of in a contract year. I know not technically on paper, yeah. like Kenny Moore, like Julian Blackman, but he kind of falls into the quitty pay contract year. You know, quitty pay is in year three of that first round pick deal. And so for those guys, you get a fifth year team option that has to be picked up after your third season. So for quitty pay, he will find out next spring whether or not um, he will be under contract through, I guess it would be 2025 if I have my math right there on that end. Um, and, and that's where kind of Leonard is, you know, with, with the out, which I think it's an $8 million a cap hit that the Colts would, would take, which is, or I think it's 8 million of dead cap, which is still a notable number, but there is an out, which is much different than the out would be right now. So, Yes, it is a, a, a outside of Kenny Moore. I, I, I can't really think of any other Colt you would put on. I think the offensive lineman you could probably group into that uh, a ton to prove just with how disappointing last season was for them. But you would put Leonard really high on the list. I, I think the other thing that makes Leonard so unique, and again, I know we are nowhere near him getting back to this level, or at least we have got to see a whole lot from him on the field before we get back to that level. 
But when I think about turnovers, and I think oftentimes people in the NFL are like, turnovers can kind of come in bunches, and turnovers can be a bit lucky. You know, it, it, it's hard to sustain that over time. I mean, unless you got some dominant edge pass rusher that whatever is forcing fumbles at a Robert Mathis rate, it's hard to do that. Leonard's first four seasons in the NFL, I mean, he proved that turnovers weren't necessarily luck. Like, he was doing it on an annual basis, on a week-in, week-out basis. And I think that's what makes his loss, again, so immense. Obviously, last year when he was on the field, he was a liability. But if you can plug that into your defense to where turnovers aren't lucky, like his presence makes the Colts a takeaway type of you know defense, that obviously does wonders for your football team. But, again, I know we're a long ways away from even going anywhere uh, near that uh, question with, with him. Yeah, it felt like a formality rather than randomness when he was at his peak. But one player who could be affected the most by him, other than Shaq himself, obviously, is EJ Speed. And maybe what did he show you last season, KB? Because I think he impressed me and showed me that he could potentially be an every-down linebacker in the NFL. Yeah, you know, I'll actually go back to the COVID Christmas game, which I I know was the year before. I think you were on the beat, James. But, you know, that was that wild game in Arizona where the Colts had so many guys out due to COVID. And he came in and played really, really good football for you in a very kind of sudden change situation. I go back to week one this past season. I mean, that was such an awful game down in Houston. But what really spurred the Colts getting back into that game was speed, making a Leonard type of defensive play. Uh, coming coming off the edge, I think had a strip sack of Davis Mills, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of started some things. And the Colts getting back into that game, and eventually, of course, tying the the Texans. So, you know, I think there's been these flashes. Um, I think the staff loves him regardless of Leonard. I think Gus Bradley's been very public in his praise of EJ Speed, and you know, obviously they gave him a two year deal. They they could have given him just a one year deal if they you know weren't as high on him. And I think when you draft a player like him. I mean, his college background is a wild story. I mean, Tarleton State, but I guess him and Leonard, to continue the similarities, both come from Division II schools. It's, South Carolina State is in a different stratosphere than Tarleton State in terms of you know actual like football programs they play. Mm-hmm. Tarleton State isn't playing Clemson. You know, South Carolina State played Clemson. So it, it, you knew when you drafted him in the fifth round in 2019, like, hey, we're going to have to be patient with him. You know, linebacker's not the position that he's played you know, for his entire life. So I think there was a lot of growth. And, you know, in typical Ballard fashion, he's hit on these linebackers, and speed is another one. So uh, if Leonard's healthy, he falls in that third linebacker role, which is like, okay, how much do you play those guys in today's NFL? If he's not healthy, or even maybe if he is, you know, speed's role could be huge for this team. So, uh, yeah, I'm really interested to see, you know, exactly. Of course, Leonard has some influence on that, certainly. But even if Leonard is a little bit healthy, I do think Speed's a guy that they want to see just more of on the field. We talk so often, Kevin Bowen joins us here on the Fan Midday Show, about patience with rookies and then looking for a leap when you enter your second year. Another piece that you focused on on 1075thefan.com is with second-year player Nick Cross. And we already know the question marks and inexperience in the cornerback room. But when you look at a safety conversation with likely Julian Blackman and Ronnie Thomas, which Thomas's case, as you highlighted in that article, KB, taken a little bit later in that same draft. As you reevaluated, where are you at on cross from having to respond to time on the bench last year as a rookie to what, if any, opportunities will be in front of him this year and year two with the team? 
Yeah, Jimmy, I don't think he walks into camp and is like in this open, strong safety competition like he was this time last year. Um, so I, I think Julian Blackman is the lead guy to line up next to Rodney Thomas uh, at, at safety. Uh, but you talk about Cross as a rookie season. I mean, just the definition of a roller coaster. First off, he's 20 years old when he gets drafted, one of the youngest guys in last year's draft. The Colts trade back into the third round to take him. And basically the talk in the room that night was, where would he go in the 2023 draft? Because he was so young and he was underclassman leaving Maryland early. And the consensus was he'd be a second-round pick. So the Colts felt, all right, if we can get him a pick 90 or whatever, and next year he's going to go pick 40, he's worth a third-rounder. You know, last year, again, he wins the starting job, takes the advantage of Rodney McLeod not being out there for the start of camp, and, and really flashed. I, I, I thought he had several moments in camp, but then, boy, he got into that regular season opener. He played every snap, but clearly they didn't like something. Week two, he played about half the snaps, and then after that, he was just flat-out benched. I, I want to say he played – I think it was maybe six defensive snaps the rest of the season, which is a, I mean, obviously it's a low number, especially low at a position like a defensive back where you do rotate back there. So um, if you look at him, it was primarily a special teams role for him. Um, again, I, I think Blackman is the lead guy when you're talking about that, that strong safety position um, and how you're penciling a depth chart here heading into training camp. But um, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, you know, he's still young. Cross. I mean, I don't even think he's turned 22 years old yet. Uh, you know, mentally, they just felt like it was a totally different story with Rodney McLeod out there versus Nick Cross and felt like he wasn't playing near the athletic ability that he has and was thinking too much and all that. Gus Bradley saying that he feels like he saw some change from him. So when you talk year two jump, as you, as you mentioned, Jimmy, uh, he certainly will be a one to watch in that category. Also year two, Alec Pierce. I was at a chance to go to his camp a while back, and it was honestly pretty cool to see so many Alec Pierce jerseys in one uh, central spot that wasn't a Colts game, and they loved seeing him. And I didn't talk to him too much about, you know, football and things like that. And one of the things that he didn't talk about was training, getting work in with both Gardner Minshew and Anthony Richardson this offseason. And so when you look at – what you want to see from him during camp, what are some things that you're hoping to see him do throughout this camp to maybe show that he is a guy who they can continue to, um, I don't want to say build around, but build with as a piece that you know could be part of this Anthony Richardson equation? Yeah, I think just bring more pitches to the arsenal. I mean, like, we know he's got the fastball. We know he's got the big play down the field. Now it's, you know, can you become a more of a complete route tree guy? I mm-hmm. think Pierce has been pretty honest himself and being like, you know, when I get to the top of my break, it's a little sloppy. And, you know, outside the numbers, he certainly can make plays. I mean, arguably the highlight of, of the season outside of that Kansas City game was, was probably beating Jacksonville at home and him and Matt Ryan putting that game on ice there late with that deep ball down the near sideline. I mean, he can make those plays, 50-50 balls in the air. And that's great for Anthony Richardson moving forward because we know that is such a strength of Richardson. But I think to ascend and to become what – there were some questions. I and mean, this was the question on him entering college – or excuse me, entering the NFL. It's, you know, he's kind of a one-trick pony. So, you know, developing more of that route tree. And honestly, I think it would be – you know, trying to tap into a little bit of what his position coach, Reggie Wayne, was so good at. <laughs> and it was at the top of the route, you didn't know what he was going to be doing. And his timing was so solid and, you know, really his technique was so sound. I think Pierce, at times, the athletic ability is great, but he's a little bit too reliant on that. Now, having said that, I think it's a decent problem to have because if you're going to be a receiver that catches one or two balls a game, 
boy, you might as well make him for 30 yards. And that's what, again, he, he can bring. I mean, he's proved that in his rookie season. Um, so that's good news because it falls in line with Richardson's strengths. But at the same time, if you want to develop rapport with a young quarterback, it's, it's trustworthy. It's being in the places that your quarterback knows that you're going to be. And I think those are some areas where he can grow and just more that underneath stuff. Well, I like that approach, you know, just be Reggie Wayne. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's just good advice from KB right there. <laughs> no, I'm joking. You're Hall of Famer. That's so easy. I mean, I, you can get it on a motivational poster, I'm sure. There's, there's a way to, way to find do. that. I'm in the sure budget. Reggie would approve. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Bowen with us, the fans' very own. You can follow him on Twitter at KBowen1070. KB, I know I'm putting the cart before the horse a little bit here, but so often over the last couple of seasons, we've talked about the need and the desire particularly if you're a playoff team, of having some type of security with who is the second name on the depth chart at the quarterback position. And I ask it that way because it's been clear over the last couple of seasons for Gardner Minshew that he believes that he can still be a starter in this league and he wants to continue to chase that dream. He's also 27 years old. And I know this is only a one-year deal, but he has a relationship with Shane Steichen dating back to last year. And I know he he likes Shane Steichen. And by all accounts, he appears to be pretty gracious if it is Anthony Richardson that wins this starting job. For Minshew, just as the player, and you look at his arc, if he doesn't get the nod as the starter here, and it's Richardson's team from Jump Street, what does it hold for him? And what are the chances that you see guys all the time that reach a point in their career where they want to find a system they like with people they like that Minshew would be a, a backup piece in Indy for his career. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great question. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, obviously his relationship with Shane Steichen is a big reason why he's here. Um, I mean, to me, it's, you know, are you Jacoby Brissett? You know, are you this guy that, yes, you know, Minshew was picked three rounds later, than Jacoby, but are you this guy that can carve out a, I mean, Jacoby's got to be approaching what, year seven, year eight in the league? You know, are, are you getting to that point where you can be a decade-long backup for you in the NFL? Um, I mean, that sounds pretty good as a six-round pick. <laughs> I'm sure there's an element of a loser mentality in that, in that you want to start and you want to reach the pinnacle of your position, but you also got to live in a dose of reality and realize there's a whole lot of six-round quarterbacks that, that don't even sniff. I mean, hell, Sam Ellinger, you know, would, would probably be one of them of a guy that would love to be, you know, Gardner Minshew here moving forward. So, uh, yes, to your point, it is a one-year deal. Um, you know, if you look at – I'm trying to think of the backups in the, in the luck era – you had Drew Stanton that, that first year, and then you had Matt Hasselbeck for those next couple of seasons, and then that's when it got into a little bit more of a revolving door once you know Hasselbeck got hurt and you brought Brissett in and all of those things. So uh, that, that, that sounds good to me. Um, you know, Minshew and Richardson, again, all we're doing is reading tea leaves from right. on-field practices, but they appear to be you know, close, and I know they obviously have trained together in the offseason. No, we talked about that that storyline a bit. So, yeah, I I don't look at Minshew and ever think a team's going to sign him in March and say, here's the keys to the franchise. He might find another situation like Indy where he kind of likes that in, in, in a year or two. It's like, okay, we've got the young unknown. We don't know if he's going to be ready. So maybe you come here and start for eight games. Uh, maybe you don't, but at least there is that chance here. Whereas you would hope if you're a Colts fan in two to three years, Richardson's the unquestioned starter and there's no even possibility for Minshew to be doing anything like that. And I think his contract 
kind of indicates this sort of thing we're talking about, Jimmy. And I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but if I'm not mistaken, I want to say he's due anywhere between like three million and seven million. I mean, they pretty much said to him, like, "Hey, man, we're going to draft somebody here in a month." and he probably will play at some point as a rookie, but we're not 100% sure. So here's a ton of playing time incentives with this deal, and we'll just see how it plays out. Yeah, I know he has a fully guaranteed deal because I wanted to – If and I knew it wasn't going to happen. If the Colts had pulled the trigger on Lamar Jackson, I was going to tweet out that the Colts have given out two fully guaranteed contracts to quarterbacks this offseason just to mess with the fans and be technically <laughs> right. But uh, KB, when you look at – this division as a whole, obviously you would assume that Jacksonville is going to be at the top. They're going to probably win the division if things go right down there in Jacksonville. But is it out of the realm of possibility for the Colts to contend and be in like that second spot when it comes to the, how the division shakes out? Because I'm not sure about the – we talk about the Colts looking for their identity, trying to start a new era, but I'm not sure about the errors that are going on in Houston and Tennessee right now. No, I think it's a great point. Yeah, I mean, they're having the same conversations we are, just about different names. And and Tennessee, you might argue, they're having a really confusing conversation given (laughs) the makeup of a Derrick Henry and then what exactly do you have in Malik Willis and Will Levis and how much money Ryan Tannehill is still making. Houston is probably the more like, okay, first-year head coach and and they drafted a young quarterback, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I mean, this division, I I mean, I I know I'm not supposed to say it, but, you know, Tennessee – injuries absolutely decimated them last year. Like, I thought the Harold Landry torn ACL, to me, that was almost kind of like the nail in the coffin of, like, they're not running away with this division at all. And obviously they did not. They fell apart in the last two months, and they lost the division by a game to to Jacksonville. Well, if you look at the AFC South, I mean, if Trevor Lawrence were to tear his ACL in September, who's winning this division? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. And, and judging by, I, I don't know, your guys' pauses, maybe you were like, wait, is Kevin going to say anything here? And I didn't know it was rhetorical because I was thinking to myself, if he tears ACL, it's, it's like it's a disaster down there. I, like. I didn't have an answer because all I saw was first round playoff exit. So that's, that's why, why I didn't have a clear. <laughs> well, yeah. Every AFC South team would be in the first round playoff exit. But again, who is the, who's the division favorite? Is, is it Jacksonville with, I don't know, CJ Beathard, whoever their backup is? is Tennessee still riding. I think Jim Irsay uh, bangs the gavel and he's like, you know what? All that rebuilding talk, Lombardi, here we come now. I'm joking. But I don't know. I mean, do the Colts have an O-line revival and Jonathan Taylor all of a sudden they win eight games or nine games and that wins the division? Again, these are all you know topics that, frankly, I don't think are as important as Anthony Richardson's development, but they are very relevant in the sense of like you do play games they are wins and losses that are the end of those games and occasionally ties. Those do matter for a whole lot of people and obviously fans as well. Um, so I, 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 to answer your question, I don't know who is second in this division. Um, I, I tend to think Tennessee just always somehow ends up in a position. But again, I say that with a whole lot of lack of confidence in it. Um, so I would, I would guess the division order is Jacksonville, Tennessee, Indy, Houston, but it would not stun me if the Colts finished second in this division. The reason why I ask that is because I always picture Jim Irsay just like throwing a chair or something whenever they lose to Tennessee or not being able to win the season opener. So I'm just picturing in my mind, like, what happens if they don't win some of these games they're probably supposed to? Because to me on paper, the Colts are good enough to 
you know, get a game off Tennessee. They're good enough to potentially – obviously, I think they should beat Houston this year at least once. And so I'm just curious to see how it plays out. We can always talk about this stuff now. But Sundays get weird sometimes, man, because even that last game against Houston last year where the Colts fans rejoiced because it resulted in a higher draft pick, that had to be like the nail in the coffin of such a weird season because I was thinking to myself – how did this happen? What is this? And I could just picture um, Jim Ursay feeling some type of way about how it all ended. But um, I guess I'll pass the buck to, J- to Jimmy now. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because it's so well, fascinating to me. I, uh, yeah, if you don't mind, I'll, I will chime in. I, first off, I think Sundays get weird is one of the truest statements I, I, I've ever heard. <laughs> so I think that's a great, great statement. And, you know, when you talk about the division and Ursay's, you know, whatever, fuming mindset towards the AFC South, Think about this, guys. The Colts won one game in the AFC South last year. One game in that bleeping division. Like, I mean, you imagine the dominance that the Colts have had in the AFC South and for Jim Irsay to have to watch that they won one game. On the in last the play, where, basically. <laughs> where, you know, Houston drafted wherever they drafted and Tennessee was right there. And it's not like, let's not act like Jacksonville went 13 and 4 last year. I mean, they, they had to have the hottest two months in the world. And that was the only win was beating Jacksonville right. at, at home. So it, it is, um, it, it's crazy how this division has absolutely just flipped, taken a total 180 from how the Colts used to handle it to how they currently are, are, are looked at. And now, in those respective cities, it used to be, I think, the biggest game on the schedule and maybe the most feared game on the schedule. And now all those teams are like, Jacksonville's like, oh my gosh, they haven't won here in a decade. <laughs> Tennessee's like, I think we won, you know, Vrabel's won what, six in a row, something like that against the Colts. Yeah. In Houston, it's just kind of like, all right, which team sucks least? <laughs> Kevin Bowen with us. You can follow him on Twitter at kbowen1070. You obviously can't plan for injuries to happen, but Kevin, you mentioned what if a doomsday scenario for Jacksonville happens and something happens to Trevor Lawrence and then the division's up for grabs. Does that mean that I am wrong or incorrect in my thought that if Richardson looks ready like, not that he's better than Minshew, but he looks ready, and the gap between Minshew and Richardson is nothing more than what you would expect from a veteran versus a rookie quarterback. If that's all it is, and maybe Minshew might win you one or two games more, but Richardson's ready for the moment, I say go with Richardson. If it's clear that he is ready from a front office slash coaching staff standpoint, I don't care about one or two more games. I want development to happen right away because I think he's ready. Is that the right pathway to have? Am I am I wrong in that regard to think if it's not a big separation between the two that let's follow what Jim Irsay said on the Pat McAfee show and go get the man reps? You, you, you couldn't be more right. I think you're 1,000% correct on that, to be totally honest with you. Uh, yeah, it, it's unquestionably exactly how you have to look at the, the, the season. And again, I know that's a bit of a loser mentality with it, but it's the reality that you have to live in. You know, I... Find me the first Colts fan that's upset about a 3-13 1998 Colts season. You know, it, yeah, you, you, you're, you're going to live with some, some growing pains, but, you know, Peyton Manning throwing the most interceptions in NFL history for, for any rookie quarterback, it, it proved to be unbelievable baptism by fire for him. So um, if there's anybody, and I get it, coaches are going to want to win games, but if there's anybody that, you know, late August, if they're all in a meeting together and they're like, all right, you know, who wants to start Minshew week one? And, you know, you've got whatever, Jim Bob Cooter, or, you know, insert your, you know, <laughs> assistant coach name that raised sure. his hand in the back. Like, guys, I think we got to start Gardner. I think we can win seven games with Gardner. And with Anthony, I don't think we can win more than five. And, 
Sorry, Jim Bob, and I know it goes on your coaching resume, but it's not about that. Like you, you've got to get outside of that thinking. And and I thought Ursay's quote to McAfee was really spot on, to be honest with you. I mean, I nodded my head at virtually every comment within that quote, which certainly is not something I often do with Ursay comments, but <laughs> especially when he said the, you know, yeah, you might win a game or two, you know, extra. Or I forget the exact phrasing with Gardner early on. But he's got to play, referencing, of course, Anthony. That's what this season is all about. You know, I think maybe it was a couple years ago now, but there was a Pacers season a few years back where, to me, you had to get out of the wins and losses mindset. And the biggest question for that team entering the season was, is Miles Turner and DeMontis Sabonis a real-life combination that you can work with moving forward? Like, that that was the big question that year for the Pacers. Yep. Obviously, they found an answer to that, and that the fact that they found an answer and they acted on that answer proved to be one of those pivotal points the franchise has had, certainly in the last decade, and we'll see if it becomes even greater with getting Halliburton, et cetera. That's the same thing with the Colts this season. The biggest question is, does Anthony Richardson take a step forward and are you at a point heading into 2024 where you continue to feel good about it? Because God forbid it goes really bad one way or the other in terms of whether it's Minshew or it's Richardson, you're going to have potentially some generational quarterbacks in next year's draft. And you're going to have to make a decision on that. Yeah. Again, I know it's not what anyone wants to think about, but that is just the reality of how this thing is going to be viewed with how next year's draft by all indications is with Caleb Williams at a USC and potentially Drake May out of North Carolina. Don't forget Marvin Harrison Jr. is still being in that top three range. Last one from me, KB. As I'm sure you saw the video, played some basketball with Anthony Richardson this week. So the next time I run into him on the court, can I just text you? Because I, need, I needed some height. I was little. I was lacking in the height department. So, you know, would you be willing to come, you know, take a charge or two or, or contest a shot? You know, it, I, I almost texted you when I saw you tweet out that video and obviously just the angle that you were filming it from. I thought for a split second that literally you were going to step in and take a charge. <laughs> I was like, this might be the most greatest, the greatest Indiana, state of Indiana basketball video of all time. And the kid from Romeoville is going to literally have a <laughs> educational video for every high school coach around the state and how to take a proper charge here. Uh, so I don't know why I thought that. It's probably because I've lived in the state my entire life there. But nonetheless, uh, that was six four two thirty coming at you pretty fast there. So I, I don't know if I would have. It, it would have looked like maybe Ben Shepard trying to fight with Chet Holmgren the other night, and that's honestly a slap in the face of Ben Shepard that I would even compare myself to. James, it could have been a TikTok POV for you. It could have been Man. taking a charge. Yeah, uh, I'm telling you, I am player. not that Hoosierized just yet. No charges from me. I have good insurance. But I'm not trying to use it on that. So, uh, KB, appreciate your insight, man, and we'll talk to you soon. Boys, have a great weekend. I've always enjoyed, or I have enjoyed, these Friday combos over the last few weeks. So uh, hopefully we can keep it going. Appreciate you, Kev. See you guys.